Yes, Lord Jesus, speak to us now, wherever we are in our spiritual journeys, wherever we are emotionally or relationally, may you help us to focus on, on you and your word and your plan for our lives. And we ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. So we're in this series that we are, are coming to an end of called God, Women, and the Healing of Humanity. And uh, this Sunday, we're going to, through the lens of Judges 4, think about the issue of women in leadership. And uh, right from the start, you might say to me, but Mark, it's just so obvious that women lead. Why are we, we even bothering to have that conversation? You might think that. You might even ask that. And here's, there's two reasons, in, at, at least in my view, for why we're going to have this discussion this morning. Firstly, as I've said before numerous times through the series, there is a perception in our culture that Christianity and the Bible is essentially patriarchal and oppressive of women. And we have systematically excluded and marginalized and diminished women and used our religion as a tool to do that. Uh, and this, this clearly is the case historically in certain instances, but I've been trying to make the case over the last six weeks that when you understand Scripture and the heart of Christianity rightly, you go, it presents for us an amazing, wonderful, life-giving vision of the way women and men are created for mutuality and equality uh, and that we are made to do life together and that it's life-affirming and wonderful and great. Okay, so that's the first reason. It's to do with stuff out there. The second reason is to do with stuff within the church. And I think it's important because uh, this is still contested space, uh, women in leadership in all sorts of ways. Just for an example, the largest denomination in the world still has a cast of leadership that is entirely male, right? The Roman Catholic Church. Now, we're not going to have a discussion in great detail about the polity and the politics of the Roman Catholic Church, but it's an important issue within the community of faith to have this discussion. So I'm going to do my best, and uh, it may or may not be much chop, but uh, here we go. And uh, let's have a little bit of a think about it. And really, I'm going to do this by asking three really simple questions. Uh, so this is what we're going to think about today. Women in leadership. And... Uh, I'm going to think about three. We're going to ask three questions. One is, uh, can they lead? Two, I, I, this, I told you this is going to be very simple. Um, uh, should they lead? If they can, should they in fact do that? It's the ancient philosophical question, does is imply ought? And the third question is, if they can and if they should, well, how should they lead? Simple. Can they lead? Should they lead? How should they lead? If they could. Uh, not to destroy the rhetorical suspense of the argument. Um, can they lead? Uh, well, here's the answer. It's not going to take very long. Yes. So you look at Judges 4, and there's, Judges is this context in Israel where uh, Israel is going through this endless spiral of 
um, coming to God, oh, woe is us, Lord, we've had the snot beaten out of us by all these pagans, please have mercy on us. God saves them, raises up a leader for them. They all go, this is fantastic, we're all keen, we're signed up to follow God. And then what happens is they go off and they worship other gods and they, the disaster comes upon them and they cry out to God and God goes, okay, I'll have mercy on you again. And, and there's this cycle through Judges. That's really the whole story of Judges, that human beings, you and I, are extraordinarily fixed when it comes to God, and we wander away very quickly, but God is always merciful and gracious and provides a leader, a savior, a judge. Deborah is one of those, and she leads very, very, very effectively. And there's another leader in the story, isn't there? (laughs) With the tent peg. So she has a role to play as well. Now, in a smaller scale, she exercises some influence. So they clearly lead. When we look through, so they lead in the Old Testament, yes. Uh, In the New Testament, there's a pile of evidence to show women in leadership in the New Testament. So we see uh, that women in the New Testament are prophets. Um, from 1 Corinthians 11, for example. Women prophesy and and word ministry, uh, communicating message from messages from God to the congregation are a way in which leadership is exercised. So, yep, New Testament women exercise leadership. Uh, Women are co-workers with the Apostle Paul. When he he does his, Paul's big into thank yous. And so, uh, here's some homework. We don't have time to do it this morning, but if you go and read Romans 16, you'll see that Paul has this long list of thank yous, of, of affirmations of all the people who've worked with him in his ministry. And, and there are women, women are very prominently um, uh, located in that. And I just wanted to pull up from the book of Acts one woman, and I'll restrain myself from making some polemical, or I might restrain myself, let's wait and see. Um, Acts chapter 18 and uh, verse 26. We see a particular woman uh, and her husband. There's a, there's a Jew named Apollos, and he's a native of Alexandria. He comes to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. There's another whole discussion around that, which we won't get into. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So this guy is smashing it for Jesus. You know, he is taking the gospel. He's, whew. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him into their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Notice in the text, in the, when... Uh, when Priscilla and Aquila are, uh, are named, whose name goes first? That's not an accident, people. Could have gone Aquila and Priscilla, or just Aquila and his wife, or Aquila and his helper. Uh, Priscilla comes first, and Aquila, and the early church recognized that Priscilla had this incredible role as a teacher of teachers. In fact, that's what John Chrysostom called her. She is regarded in the early church as the teacher of teachers. He has a high status, a Jewish male, learned uh, in everything. Um, and a woman gets to teach her and shape her ministry and life in the church. Isn't that cool? So, can women teach in the New Testament? Yes, they're co-workers, they're prophets. They're also, it seems to be, um, uh, in the New Testament, uh, leaders of house churches. I don't have time to go into this. We might delve into it a little more um, on the 13th. But they're leaders of house churches, right? Um, 
So the early church met typically not in big buildings like this. They didn't have the money. They hadn't yet gotten institutionalized. So you'd meet in the synagogue with all your Jewish family and friends. And then you'd, you'd worship God there and you'd get into long discussions and arguments about Jesus in the synagogue. But then during the week, you'd meet in someone's home. Typically, they were the homes of wealthy people because they were big enough to accommodate, you know, between 30 and 60 people. And in the New Testament, we see the people whose homes they met in were were named as the homes of women. And so it was women who are hosting and the some and a whole bunch of scholars would say by implication exercising leadership in those house churches. So women lead and uh, throughout the book of Acts we see woven in this a careful inclusion of women as believers as as uh, people proclaiming the gospel as objects of persecution because of their faith and as of leaders in the house church. So can women lead we look at the historic documents and we go, yes, they can. Next question is, they can lead, but dear brothers and sisters, should they lead? It's more significant, right? So that was back then. What about now? Here's the answer, I think. And the answer takes us to uh, this day, which we remember in the church calendar, which is the day of Pentecost, Right? Say, should women lead today? Well, let me give you a bit of a history lesson. Uh, the very center of the Christian experience or life is this idea of life with God. So what we lost in Genesis 1 and 2, what we lost as a result of human sin, is the experience of a life uh, of deep intimacy with God, of His presence with us. The Bible says that's a result of human sins. We've given God the big finger. We're separated from God. Now, what God wants to do is reestablish that connection. The way that happens in the Old Testament is that connection between God and his people happens episodically. What I mean is the Holy Spirit, who is the means or the agent of this personal, intimate connection between people and God. The Holy Spirit comes upon people like Deborah in the Old Testament, but comes upon them for a time and a purpose and a season. So here, Holy Spirit, you know, Israel's going along. They have a big challenge. What happens? The Holy Spirit comes. Holy Spirit comes. Now you're equipped. You do your ministry. You lead. You prophesy. You change things. The Holy Spirit goes away. doesn't go on everyone. So the Israelites, like most of the, the surrounding world, are living somewhat removed from God, connecting with Him through a special caste of priests, sacrifices, temple. God is there, but He's not intimately present the way He was in Genesis 1 and 2. But there was a great hope, a great hope that the Israelites had that is woven into all of Scripture, that there would come a time when the Creator God would pour His Spirit out, not just on a few people, on the prophets and the priests and the kings for a few tasks, but there would come a time when God would pour His Spirit out on all humankind so that every person could reestablish and have access to this deep, intimate connection with their Creator God. And friends, that is what Jesus has accomplished in this world. As the Son of God, He comes into this world to live and die and rise again, and then to pour His Spirit out into the world so that people like you and I can be reconnected with God. And the story, as Richard mentioned as we set up this, uh, this service, this story we read in the book of Acts on this day of Pentecost. And here it is in Acts chapter 2. 
this is the, the, the Spirit has come upon the church. They've been gathered. People are speaking in tongues. There's tongues of fire. There's amazing stuff going on. People, it can be heard all around. People go, man, these guys are drunk. What's going on? This is not very orderly. This doesn't look very Anglican. And uh, then Peter stands up and addresses the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. It's like not even a 10 o'clock service. It's a nine o'clock service, and they're going bonkers. Like the Holy Spirit is there, and people are proclaiming the gospel in all kinds of languages. He says, no, this is what is spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. The gift of the Spirit of God, which we celebrate at Pentecost today, birthed the church and birthed the church for a purpose. And we find the purpose in chapter 1, right? Chapter 1, just before Jesus uh, ascends back into heaven, uh, he gives his his people, his disciples, their marching orders. He tells them what's going to happen. He says... Um, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by His own authority, in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What does that mean for our story? Should they? Yes, they should. Why? Why? Because... They've received, because of Pentecost, they've received the Holy Spirit and because of the mission of the church. Women are included fully in the book of Acts in the reception of the Holy Spirit and receiving the Holy Spirit, they are included fully in the mission of the church to be God's witnesses in Jerusalem, in their, in their immediate circle, in Jerusalem, in their more extended circle, in Jerusalem and in Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. God's plan is for all God's people to be filled with His Holy Spirit, women, men, young, old, adults, children, to be full of the personal, powerful presence of the Holy Spirit. And being so filled with the Holy Spirit, what does God want us to do? Well, He wants us as women and as men together to take this incredible news that the Creator God has come to heal the world and that He's come to heal the world through dying for the world and now the kingdom of heaven is thrown open to all and just come Come back to your God. Come and be saved. Come and be healed. Come and be restored. He says that news, that restorative, powerful, transforming message has to go to the ends of the earth. And women and men together have this task. So, should women lead? Well, yes, they should. It just seems to me to exclude 50% of the labor force from this task... It's just nuts. Just at a, just obviously. I go, the work is so great. Like, 
Listen, we live in a messed up world, don't we? Like we live in a world where it looks like evil is triumphing over good all the time. We live in a world where women and children continue to be trafficked and sold into slavery and oppression. I mean, men as well, but women and children by far the greater extent. We live in a world where people still starve to death. We live in a world that's ripped apart by domestic violence uh, and gender-based violence. We live in a world where we face enormous challenges and we're very good at slaughtering each other. And in this world, God wants to send His church to say, you guys go and tell the story of the Prince of Peace. You guys go and, and set the captives free. You guys go and be peacemakers. You guys go and model for the world a new way of being human. And it just seems to me we've all got to be on board with that mission. Because <laughs> it's a big one. It's not going to happen if we sit around fighting with each other. Well, no, you can do this, you can't do that. Drawing narrow little lines and boxes and putting people in them and keeping people to one side. Well, you're not quite good enough and you're not quite this and you're not quite that. I'm like, no, let's, you know, let's all get on board. There's plenty of work to do. It's not like we're fighting over positions of influence in the church. It's because, like, really, there's so much to be done. Why should we fight with each other? Why should we exclude each other? I just think, let's get on board, people. Women, men, old, young. Wherever you are in your life, God wants to use you. He has a plan for you. He has a plan to put you in this community of a church and then send us out so that His will is done on earth as it is done in heaven, that His kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, and that we are the agents of that renewal and transformation and healing in the world. Oh, my goodness. I mean, when we, when we sorry, this is a bit of a, when we diminish or, or marginalize women, it's like you're a UFC fighter going into the cage with one arm and one leg, you know, tied behind your back, and you're now going into the cage to fight against good and against evil, and you're hamstrung, and you're limited. Sorry, that was a very blokey illustration, and I know that doesn't. But you know what I mean? Like, a, you're just nuts, right? Why would you do that? Well, I'll tell you why we, why we do that often. I'll tell you why in the church we've diminished and marginalized and excluded women so often from position and power. It's because we buy into a profoundly worldly in the worst sense of the word, vision of leadership. So, let me explain, and, and I'm sure you've all had your experience of this. Let me point out to you, you know, how should women lead? I want to answer this by showing you, you know, how we often see leadership functioning in the world, and then I'll show you how I think it needs to work in the church, and, and then we'll see who wants to put their hands up to lead, right? Like a bunch of blokes will be heading for the doors. Um, so, in our world, often... Uh, we see life as, uh, you know, it's like a ladder here, right? And life is about climbing this ladder. And, at the, and, and the higher you get, the more power, the more position, the more prestige, and the more possessions you get, right? That's what happens. So the goal in life in every human culture, post 
Genesis 3, post the fall, after we've started to screw up our lives, what happens is all human cultures default to this position where we are desperately climbing this ladder. And uh, the goal of life, when Paul was writing in, uh, in the New Testament, in Roman and Greek culture, was absolutely to, in an honor-based culture, to maximize your power, your position, your prestige, and your possessions. Now, here's the thing, right? Uh, at the top of this ladder, it's only one little rung, and there's a very small space at the top of the ladder, right? Now, there is a massive big space down the bottom here, right? This is like the whole world is here. But if you're going to climb up, there's only a little bit. So what happens when you... What do the people at the top do once they've got to the top? Well, they want to make sure they don't get pushed off the top. And how, what's the best way to make sure you don't get pushed off the top? By making sure you, you put in place as much, structure, as much structure and power as you can to keep the people on the bottom on the bottom. And you want to make it really, really hard for them to get to the top, right? So, growing up in South Africa, or in Africa, saw it very clearly. One tribe was on top. You had the white Afrikaans tribe on top. And they, they, uh, they were on top because they, they had power on top. They had position, prestige, possessions. And they worked very, very hard to keep all the other tribes down below, right? So, just below the, the, the white Afrikaans people were the white English-speaking people. But we were definitely below it. And then there, were the, then there were the colored people, and then there were the Indian people, and then there were the Asian people, and then at the bottom were the blacks. Right? In, when Paul was writing, uh, what you, ha- you had a clear hierarchy in Roman culture at the time, where what you had at the top of the pile were the citizens of Rome. The citizens. And these were all male. And then uh, that was the major, and they had all the power position, and you couldn't, you had to be born as a citizen, you had to be born as a male, you could, if you, uh, later on in the Roman Empire, you could buy, purchase your citizenship if you were very wealthy and successful, but basically you were born into this position, uh, power, pr- prestige, and position, which of course is the best way possible of limiting who gets to the top, right? Because if it's a function of biology and you're born into it, well, that's a really smart trick because you've immediately removed 50% of your competition, right? It's really smart. So you then want to entrench that. Well, it's awesome. I don't have to compete with the other 50% of the world uh, because actually the people on the top feel terribly vulnerable uh, all the time because they're trying to protect their place in the sun. So uh, they're citizens, and then you could be uh, a free male. Uh, Below that was a free female. Below that uh, were, was a, a, male, a, a male slave, and below that was a female slave. So massively strict hierarchy, uh, and in the ancient world, as in many other types of the world, what's another trick? So the, what's, an, what's a trick that people at the top use to entrench their power? First trick we make it based on biology so I can with, with remove 50% of the competition for my power, position, prestige, and possessions. The next trick, which all human beings do, is we then say, ah, listen, listen. This ordering of life, citizens, free men, free women, male, female slaves, uh, this ordering is fixed. 
and it's fixed by God or the gods. So what you have to do to flourish in the world is find your status, your position in life. And the, a good Christian person, a good pagan, a good Muslim, a good Buddhist, a good Hindu, a good you find you and you, you do that well. That's a really clever way of discouraging people from climbing the ladder, right? Isn't that clever? You'd have, it's pretty smart. Like, well, now I've, I've knocked out 50% of the competition, and now everyone else who might compete with me, I'm telling them, if you're really serious about your religion, you won't possibly want to compete with me because what you need to do is be good at your station. Be really comfortable and happy on your rung of this ladder. Okay, God wants you here, right? So stay here. Does that make sense? Uh, all the time. Uh, you can apply this analysis to companies as well. I mean, this is they get in bed with governments and we put in place all kinds of monopolistic legislation to try and prevent competition. And we do this everywhere. It's just, it's the default in the human heart. And let me tell you, the only reason you might not have participated in this is because you haven't had the opportunity to. Because <laughs> if, if you do, you will. That's where we default to, right? That's what Lord Acton said. Uh, power tends to corrupt and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. Because once you're at the top, it's a lovely place to be. I'll, t I'll give you some example of the ra like extraordinary hypocrisy around this. Uh, you'll hear in the newspapers, you'll see the massive salaries that CEOs are paid. And they'll go, well, of course, we, we need to be paid like 300 times the, uh, the, the wage of the lowest paid worker. And I need $10 million a year because it's so stressful being the CEO. It's a terrible, crushing burden. And unless I'm paid $10 million, I couldn't possibly do it. You know, they did some research in the UK looking at, uh, uh, over like 40 years, the, um, uh, the life expectancy of CEOs versus the second in charge in organizations. There's like an eight-year difference in life expectancy between the CEO and the second in charge in an organization over a 40-year period. Why? Because when you're on top... You're going to be healthier, you've got agency, you've got power, you've got prestige, you've got position. And it's the poor bloke beneath who's got, that's the stressful place. So isn't it clever that we all believe in this and it's a complete myth and a complete lie? Uh, and of course, we all believe in it because deep in our hearts, we all somehow think, if I just got up the ladder a little higher, I might, you know. Now... I reckon part of the problem in the church, by the church, I mean the church universal, is we've essentially bought into this model of leadership when we come to think about leadership in the church and how authority and power works. Now, not, not ob no, no one would stand up and say that, but I think that's true very often, isn't it? We've become an institutionalized organization playing by these rules rather than a missionary movement giving ourselves in the love and service of the world. What's the, and that breaks my heart, what's God's vision of authority and power and leadership in the world, right? Let me, let me show you this. There's a ladder, isn't there? Okay. And it starts in heaven. And where does it end? It ends on the cross. 
And in the kingdom of God, the whole paradigm is inverted because while human beings are desperately trying in our fear to cl- and, our, and our, our competition to climb up the ladder, God says, how am I going to save this world? Well, Jesus comes and he says he has all the power, all the position, all the prestige, all the possessions in heaven. And he, what does he do? He descends. He comes down. And what is the pinnacle of the greatness of Jesus Christ? What is the moment in Jesus' life when he is most powerfully acting to heal and save the world, to overcome evil, to lead humankind from bondage into the glorious freedom of the children of God? What's the greatest moment of power and leadership in Jesus' life? It's when he dies. An utter worldly failure, naked, alone, humiliated, tortured, unjustly tried, and brutalized to death and abandoned by his father. The Bible says then and there we see the greatest example of leadership and power the world has ever seen. We know, and we know that on the other side of this, there is the ascent to glory. But you can't go straight to the glory. You can't just try and climb your ladder from here to here. The Bible says the way of true humanity. In fact, Jesus said this. If You're not to lead the way the Gentiles lead who lord it over others. What you need to understand is if anyone in my kingdom wants to be truly great, what do they have to do? They have to become a servant of all. Jesus said the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Leadership in the kingdom of God is leadership in downward mobility defined by servanthood and sacrifice and self-giving love. That's how we win influence. Because think about it. Very simply, leadership equals influence. How are Christians to influence the world? Let me tell you, friends, churches who are driven to try and influence the world by climbing into positions of cultural and economic and political power and prestige, uh, fail. Because we become just like every other organization in the world. Through the last 2,000 years, how has the gospel spread? How has this mission, fueled by the Holy Spirit, been accomplished in the world? It's been when Christians have said, our greatest influence comes when we lay down our lives in sacrificial service of others in just the way that our king laid down his life for us. We serve. We empty ourselves of our longing for position and status and power, and we say we are here to serve. One of the the ways we think about this in the church, (laughs) servant leadership, right? So I'll, I'll just expose to you a bit of the hypocrisy in the church or, or the, our, our cleverness in self-deceit. We go, well, yes, in the church, we believe in servant leadership. 
But what we do is we start with leadership. We say, this is the most important thing that defines us. And then, oh, well, we'd better modify our leadership with a bit of servanthood, right? Because we sort of know we should do that. And, and we should. In the kingdom of God, guess how it works? What's, what's the defining thing about us? Not our leadership, but our servanthood. And in fact, Jesus and the Apostle Paul actually call us slaves. We're to be slaves to Christ. And we are slaves, we are servants first and foremost and always and only and ever. And then out of our status as servants and slaves of Jesus and of the world, then we get to exercise influence. See the way it works? How do women exercise leadership in the world? Well, in the same way that men do, essentially. By standing as a servant in the world and saying, Here I am, Lord, use me. I have this phrase that a friend taught me years ago. He says, We're just small change in God's pocket, and He can spend us as He sees fit. So we're just here. If we're followers of Jesus this morning, we're here and we're saying to God, God, fill me with your spirit and then use me. And don't worry about the power and the position and the prestige and the possessions. They're a distraction. They're an irrelevance. And I sometimes wonder, um, you know, a lot of the debate in the church internally around leadership in the church is really because we're living like this and we're not living like this. I've always found it easy, you know, when you look in the church, it's easy to recruit men to serve on church boards and standing committees and, you know, positions of, whoa, whoa, mm. And when you want someone to go and die on the other side of the world in the service who haven't yet heard, that's where the women are to be found, Right? When you want people to roll up their arms and go into the slums of the world to rescue girls who are being trafficked into sex slavery, well, that's, I'm telling you what, you're going to find women working in those NGOs in a ratio of like four to one compared to men. We're all back home securing our retirement and our big houses and our promotions. And the women of the world are rolling up their sleeves and they're serving in the way of Jesus. So, we need the Holy Spirit and we need women to serve. So here's what I wanted to do. I wanted, uh, we don't often do this. In fact, I don't know that we've ever done this before. And before the kids come in for communion, I want, what I want is the women, if you feel comfortable with this and even if you don't. Aww, there's kids, right? I'm going to ask, uh, what I want to do is I want to ask the women of the church to stand. And I want us, as the men of the church, to honor you and to bless you and to pray for you that God's Holy Spirit will fill you this morning and equip you to live as courageous, world-changing servants of the kingdom of God. And to honor you and to say, we have to learn from you and to love you and to support you. And as men, we have to repent from the ways we've bought into the model, the prevailing model of leadership, and use that to diminish and exclude where we have. So I don't know, do you feel comfortable doing that? 
Sorry? What if we haven't? Well, that's another sermon. That's it. That's another sermon. And I think many of us haven't. And I, don't, I think we all do. Women and men buy into this. And if you come next Tuesday, we can think more about how we do that. But women, if, if the women of the church, you just want to stand and I want to pray, even if you're visiting for the first time, if you just want God's Spirit to be upon you, just to bless you women and pour out God's love on you. Doesn't that feel weird? Yeah, it does. No. Well, come on in, kids. We're just praying for all the wonderful women of this church. Your mums. And your grandmas. So let's pray for these women. Uh, Lord Jesus, I thank you for the women of our church. And I pray that you, this Pentecost, will pour your Holy Spirit out on these women. That they will be mighty leaders in the fight against evil and injustice. That they will be mighty women of faith who go into this world so that your kingdom comes and your will is done on earth as it is done in heaven. I pray, Jesus, for these women that they will never be discouraged as they bang their heads against a world that has an upside-down view of leadership and power, that they will never lose sight of the truth of Jesus and His self-sacrificing love, and that they will commit themselves, body, mind, and soul, into this great work for You. And I pray that our church, full of Your Spirit, will be a place where women are raised up and affirmed and valued for this life-changing work. So fill these women with your Holy Spirit. Pour your love and grace and mercy out on them now. We all pray. And God's people, particularly the men, all said, Amen.